Chapter 23 of A Mayfair Magician, A Romance of Criminal Science. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Mayfair Magician, A Romance of Criminal Science by George Griffith. Chapter 23. The note which Ram Dass had so mysteriously presented ran as follows. The door of the Chamber of Secrets will be open at ten o'clock tonight. There was no signature, for none was necessary. Very well, Ram Dass. You can tell your master that I shall be there. He's gone, said the princess, and yet, somehow, I did not see him go. He just seemed to fade away. There's something uncanny about that man, as indeed there seems to be about the whole of this institute. Don't you think so? Gone, has he? exclaimed her companion, looking up quickly from the note. Eh, oh, yes, I must confess I have thought the same about our friend Ram Dass. The other day he played the same sort of trick. He came into my room, ushered in by Sanders in the usual way, and when our conversation was over, he just disappeared. I was looking out of the window for the moment, and when I turned round, he was gone. But I certainly neither heard the door open nor shut. But, after all, that's quite a common sort of mystery in the East. Still, it is nothing that your highness and myself have had a glimpse of, and which I shall probably go to the end of tonight. Ah, she said, looking at him with a glance of intense inquiry. That means, I presume... "'that you are going to complete the experiment "'which I failed in so miserably?' "'Not altogether failed, Princess,' he replied, "'with a smile that was full of meaning for her. "'At least you discovered something.' "'Yes,' she said with a little snap of her teeth. Two or three somethings, "'and among them the very thing I did not want to know. "'And yet, since it is the truth, "'is it not as well that you should know it?' These things are not within our own control, you know. If they were, one might order them differently. He looked straight into her eyes as he spoke. The words came slowly, as though he were weighing the effect of each one of them. She flushed ever so slightly, and he saw the lace which covered her breast rise and fall in a little flutter. And would you order this differently if you could? she asked, leaning a little toward him. He thought that she never looked quite as beautiful or as desirable in his eyes as she did in that moment, and he answered quietly and with perfect frankness, Yes, if I could, and if you wished it, and would help me. You know that already, she replied, rising. I suppose, according to the ordinary conventions, I ought to have told a lie instead of saying that, but of course between us a lie would be rather worse than a nuisance. It would be so entirely futile. And now, if you will take me back, I think I will say good-bye. I have another call to make this afternoon. Will it be too much to ask that you should tell me something of the result of the experiment? She went on as they left the little summer-house. I am so ashamed of my stupid weakness that I should like to have a chance of braving the ordeal again. No, not with you this time, or indeed with any other man, but with a woman." some dear, innocent, white-souled creature, like our mutual friend Grace Enstone, for instance. The angry light in her eyes and the note of mockery in her voice 
angered and almost disgusted him for the instant. But the next, the possibility that she had suggested, came swiftly home to him. That should be not altogether impossible, he said, and who knows what wonders a soul-searcher might reveal. To her, perhaps, she laughed a little bitterly, to me I fear the only revelation would be that of the white flower of spotless womanhood. I don't know that that quotation is quite correct, but under the circumstances I don't think it is very far wrong. Frankly, and without any arrière-pensée, I don't think that I should find very much hope for you in the revelations of the soul-searcher. No, he replied, I don't think you would, and I am not at all sure that I should like you to do so. Ah, she said, looking up at him again with a gleam of triumph in her eyes, then you would wish the unattainable to remain the immaculate. Was it then only a platonic affection that I thought I saw in the Chamber of Secrets? Or is the soul-searcher not infallible after all? To her intense disappointment, and his very considerable relief, they turned at this point, out of a little shrubbery, onto the lawn, and were joined by Colonel Rowell Grover and Lady Georgina Pontifex, who, after a rapid glance from one to the other, said, Ah, there you are, Princess. Where have you and Mr. Simons been hiding yourself, I wonder? We have been looking for you all over the place, to ask you to come and sing us one of those lovely old Polish songs of yours. Princess Natif sang her song and took her leave almost immediately afterwards. Hedley Simmons stopped a little longer in the half-confessed hope of having a few words with Grace. He found her with her husband and her hostess on the lawn, and as he joined them, Mrs. Rowell Grover shook her fan at him and said laughingly, Yes, Mr. Simmons, come here, please. I have a little bone to pick with you. I'm sorry to hear that he said as he raised his hat. May I ask in what I have had the misfortune to offend the most charming of hostesses? Oh, it isn't quite as bad as that, she said. I only want you to plead guilty to monopolizing the princess's very charming society for a rather unconscionable time. We have hardly seen anything of her until Lady Georgina discovered you and brought her in to sing. Well, since you say so, he laughed in reply, I must plead guilty, especially as you yourself supplied the most valid excuse. Guilty with extenuating circumstances, said the colonel. I suppose most of us would have done the same, granted permission. And now, Simmons, what can you tell me about this wonderful horse of yours that our friends here saw you on this morning in the park? You know there's nothing much I love better than a piece of really good horse flesh and a Good pacer, as Enstone describes him, is a bit of a rarity here. Ah, oh, yes, replied the millionaire, looking quickly at Grace and then at her husband. You mean Guerrero, my Spanish-American beauty. Well, you must come and have a look at him, Colonel. I have half a dozen pacers at Winthrop, and when any of my South American friends come over, we run down and have races. You must run down for a weekend and watch us. You don't go in for pacing, I suppose, but I have got some very good English horses, too, and they would be very much at your service. By the way, Enstone, he went on, turning to Harold, when are Mrs. Enstone and yourself going to honor the Towers by accepting that bold invitation? Of course you, with your worldwide travels, must often have been across a pacer. Uh, yes, said Harold, looking hard at him and purposely ignoring the invitation. In fact, I very much prefer pacing to trotting, 
and of course I have done a lot of it in the western states. That's a magnificent animal of yours, and wonderfully fast, I should say. He's a Mexican, isn't he? When I saw you, I said to the wife, you were riding in quite the Mexican style. Both Grace and Harold looked keenly at him for some slip of consciousness on his part, but they were disappointed. He returned their glance with perfect carelessness and frankness, and said, I suppose I ought to take that as a great compliment, for, of course, Mexicans are about the greatest riders in the world. But I'm sorry to say that you are wrong. Guero is a son of the Pampas, bred near Corrientes on the Parana, and I have never been in Mexico. In fact, I know nothing of North America outside its cities and business centers. But I have spent a good deal of time in South America, both on the Pacific and Atlantic coasts. He took his leave a few minutes later, and as he strolled down towards the upper end of the Edgeware Road, where he meant to take a cab home, he murmured between his teeth, Now why should Enstone have asked me so pointedly about that writing, and why should the beautiful Grace have looked at me quite as hard as she did? Mexican, Mexican. Oh, good Lord, of course, I see it now. How in thunder could I have forgotten it? Of course, he was riding beside the old man that day when he pulled his gun on me. That day at Poverty Fork, opposite Joe Redmond's last chance saloon. Great Scott! I thought it was my last chance when I didn't get my gun out quick enough. Scared snakes! If he's only certain about that, I reckon he'll be able to make more trouble than enough. Still, I don't see as how there can be much fear of that, unless the old man has left some record behind him. After all, it will only be word against word, and I guess if I couldn't swear him inside out after all these years, my name isn't what it used to be, to say nothing of what it is. Still, that's all the more reason for working out the other scheme if it can be done, the other scheme for making the beautiful Grace a widow. If Halkind really is alive, he shouldn't have any too much love for Harold Enstone, and if he got Sir Godfrey out of the way as easily as he did for a million, there is no reason why he shouldn't be able to manage a job like this for two. And by all that's anything, she's worth it. If Mr. Hedley Simmons had spoken this little soliloquy aloud, and any of his acquaintances had listened to it, they would have been not a little astonished by the sudden change that had come over both the man and his manner. Hedley Simmons, millionaire and student, brilliant financier and polished man of the world, had disappeared for the moment, and his place had been taken by the more vulgar, if not more ruthless, adventurer of fifteen years before. In fact, there could not have been a more complete confirmation of what Harold Enstone happened to be saying about the same time to Grace. I am just as certain as ever I was that he is the man. More so, indeed, for now that I have placed him, he seems to get more familiar to me every moment. Anyhow, there must be someone left on Poverty Fork that knew him and us and remember the shooting. Let me see. They call it Pine Bluff City now, after the clumps of pines on the top of the bluff between the forks of the river. I will cable out this afternoon to the mayor and ask if he can give me any news. If he can't, he is pretty sure to know someone who remembers the once famous Bully Benfield, for he was everything on his lower plane that he is on his higher. I mean he was a highly educated man, an artist, and a musician an incurable gambler, unflinching speculator, an entirely unscrupulous scoundrel. Someone must remember him, and if so, over they come to England, and we'll have it out. It's better done sooner than later, or if I'm right, 
A blagger like that should have no place in decent society. Oh, of course you are right, dear, replied Grace, but looking up at him with a dawning apprehension in her eyes. Justice is justice, and it should be done. But I am afraid it will be no child's play to make an enemy of that man, if he really is what you think, especially as he has won this great position in the world and is master of a great many more millions than you are. You needn't trouble much about that, dear, he said. Clever at all as Hedley Simmons is, Jenner Halkine was a thousand times cleverer and more dangerous, and we ran him to earth. Now if Halkine were alive, and he and Simmons, alias Banfield, by some miracle or another managed to put their heads together for the working of mischief, it would be a distinctly formidable combination. But happily, that is improbable. I wonder how you got that idea in your head, Harold, she said quickly and rather anxiously. You know, I have had just the same idea in my mind since you told me the story this morning. If I didn't know, as you say, that it was totally impossible, I should begin to fear that my gift of second sight was coming back to me. I have been too happy since the other troubles were over to think about it, but it's curious that what you said should have brought it back to me, isn't it? Well, there's one thing quite certain, dear, he replied. There can't be possibly anything more than an idea suggested by the association of this man with Sir Godfrey, and therefore with Halkine, and as a realization of it is entirely out of the question, you may as well put it out of your mind at once. Oh, yes, of course, it can't be anything but an idle fancy. I shouldn't have said anything about it, only I thought it was rather a curious coincidence that your story this morning should have suggested it so vividly. Of course, there can't be anything in it. The impossible doesn't happen nowadays. She spoke with a light-hearted confidence which she would have thought anything but justified if what she called her gift of second sight had enabled her to foresee what was going to happen in the Chamber of Secrets that night at the Institute. End of chapter 23 Recording by Todd